Welcome to The Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world. This is a special series of conversations about how Black and white women are navigating anti-racism. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. On each of these special episodes, I'll be in conversation with a Black, Indigenous, or woman of color colleague, and together we'll explore anti-racism and racial justice, what it means not only in the big picture, but how our daily lives are impacted, what we're reading, what we're doing, and where we go from here. The Liberatory Consciousness Framework, created by organizational development consultant Barbara J. Love, was recently presented by Erica Hines of Every Level Leadership at a small business community forum on racial justice organized by Rachel Rogers. The framework has four parts, awareness, analysis, action, and accountability slash allyship. As Erica Hines emphasized in her presentation, many of us aren't ready for action yet because we haven't completed the work in the awareness and analysis stages. This special series is part of my effort to raise awareness and engage in the analysis. There's a list of anti-racism resources at wellwomanlife.com slash anti-racism. And you can check out all the past episodes of the Well Woman Show featuring Black, Indigenous, and women of color at wellwomanlife.com slash women of color. This special series on anti-racism is part of the Podcasters for Justice campaign. We are podcasters united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many, many others at the hands of the police. This is a continuation of the systemic racism pervasive in our country since its inception, and we're committed to standing against racism in all its forms. We believe that to be silent is to be complicit. We believe that Black lives matter. We believe that Black lives are more important than property. We believe that we have a responsibility to use our platforms to speak out against this injustice whenever and wherever we are witnesses to it. In creating digital media, we have built audiences that return week after week to hear our voices, and we'll use our voices to speak against anti-Blackness and police brutality. And we encourage our audiences to be educated, engaged, and to take action. Here are three things you can do right away. The first is donate to any of the following funds, George Floyd Memorial Fund, Minnesota Freedom Fund, Black Visions Collective, Campaign Zero, or Black Lives Matter. Number two, sign a petition. You can text FLOYD to 55156 to sign a petition to demand justice for George Floyd. Number three, you can sign up at Color of Change to be notified of more opportunities to take action. You can find all of these links on the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash podcast. On the Well Woman Show this week, I share part two in a series of conversations with Black, Indigenous, and women of color colleagues and friends, and together we explore anti-racism and racial justice, what it means not only in the big picture, but how our daily lives are impacted, what we're reading, what we're doing, and where we go from here. This week, I'm in conversation with my colleague, Angelica Archuleta, and we are exploring racial justice from our unique perspectives and lived experiences. Angelica was born in Santa Fe, raised in Española, and grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. As a lupus survivor since the age of 10, her passion for human rights is rooted in her lived experiences. All the information shared today can be found at the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash 210 show. 
including links to the first episode in this series, the list of anti-racism resources, the list of interviews with women of color, as well as how to join our community on Facebook. Again, that link is wellwomanlife.com slash 210 show. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from High Desert Yoga in Albuquerque. I'm speaking with Angelica Archuleta today. How are you? Hi, I am doing great. I'm feeling really good today. It's it's hump day and I'm really excited to talk. Awesome. So as we heard in the introduction, this is part of a series on how Black, Indigenous, and women of color are navigating anti-racism and in conversation with white women, me being a white woman. Um, and I just, Angelica, I wanted to kind of just start with like, how are you... Uh, experiencing how are you doing with everything that's going on in the country in the world but also here in New Mexico where we're located in New Mexico and there's a lot of things happening here too how are you doing and what are your thoughts well I'll definitely say that I'm taking it day by day really that's the best I can do and I always want to go back and talk about how my anti-racism work kind of started. And I feel like I've been doing, um, having a lot of these conversations for a really long time, but now I'm having them with people who I don't normally have them with. And so, Mm. of course, that's really, really great. And um, so, yeah, I also would like to just mention that I I do identify as a New Mexican, really. I don't like to really use the term Hispanic. I will say that I do identify with many Latina and Chicana cultural characteristics. Um, But as far as my skin color goes, I am white passing um, and a white presenting woman. But the other intersectionality that I speak from is of the disability section. Um, I have been suffering with lupus since I was 10 years old and a survivor of lupus. And so that's about 19 years um, having that struggle. So those are the two different um, intersections that I really am viewing this from. So I think that's important. When I first started, uh, you know, going back to school and really diving into sociology, um, I started at CNM where I took a uh, a social movements course. So that was my first, you know, introduction into really what you don't learn in public education. So that was just a really eye-open experience. And from there, I just, you know, I just kept on going forward with um, learning everything that I could about racial and social justice. And when I got to UNM, um, I took an anti-racist course with a woman by the name of Andrea Veda, who I now consider to be a huge mentor of mine. She is a doctoral student um, at UNM. Her One of the first assignments that I remember in taking her anti-racism course was to um, write a an essay on the first time that we felt um, as being an other. And so for me, that was um, another kind of huge stepping stone in 
my understanding of how I how I view these issues, um, like I said, through my intersectional lenses of being a disabled person. Um, and so the first time that I can remember being the other was when I was diagnosed with lupus. I had this, it's called the butterfly rash on my cheeks. And so, um, you know, I was teased. I had to do chemotherapy. I lost some of my hair. So I was teased for that. And I can remember that being the first moment that I experienced otherness. Mm. Um, so yeah, I always really try to include that disability, um, portion whenever I'm looking at any of these issues as well. So, yeah, (laughs) that's a a great kind of insight into sort of who you are and, and how you come to this. And, and it's so important to, to start there, I think. So thank you for that. Um, I think exploring yeah. the, yeah, exploring the otherness, you know, from the intersectional lens is so critical. And um, it, it really brings to light all of the different kind of dominant cultures that exist. So, you know, you as a, like you said, white presenting uh, New Mexican have these other identities, right? Like in, and disability is one of them and being a woman is another one of them, which you didn't mention, but it's on my mind a lot because that's, that's one of my identities. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. And, and a hetero woman as well. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's definitely a dominant culture. So, so it's interesting, you're part of, like, you identify with some dominant cultures and some non-dominant cultures. And so navigating that, it, it must be a challenge. Yeah, it, you know, and I really, it brings me back to the um, liberatory consciousness model, which I think is really great. It, it's a really great framework to kind of um, conceptualize everything that's going on and um, the steps really break it down. And so I, another thing that I learned from Andrea is, you know, we're constantly, I feel like I need to be constantly working on my critical consciousness. So it really brings me back to that. And, you know, when I first look at the stages, you know, we've got stage one awareness, stage two analysis, stage three is action and stage four is accountability and allyship. And at first glance, I see myself at stage four, but then we begin to really d- deep dive into, like you said, the dominant um, cultures and the non-dominant cultures. And I feel myself still, I could be considered at the first stage. It's like a constant state of learning and, and re-educating and um, decolonizing the mind is the term that I really like to use is decolonization of everything is is something that I strive to do on a daily basis. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so the liberatory consciousness framework was developed by Dr. Barbara J. Love. And I have come across this now a couple of times just in the last few days uh, or less, you know, few days and weeks um, through different trainings and, uh, community forums and things. And, and actually 
you and I both participated in the whiteness at work training uh, recently and were part of it ongoing throughout the whole month of July as, as part of a, something we're working on together in another context at work. Um, for listeners, we, we work together on Helica and I work together. So we're in our other capacity working together, doing this training called whiteness at work. So we did the first part and uh, there were a lot of things that came up that were just, I just was like soaking up the information and I wanted to call out a couple of things that I noticed really struck me. And one was um, the trainer and it was Desiree Attaway from the Attaway group with her colleague, Jessica Fish, and they were presenting this training and one of them quoted someone else and I didn't catch who they were quoting, but they said, um, race is a strategic priority, not a moral nicety. Yes. And that really <clears throat> struck me. What did, what did you think of that? I think that I, that stood, stood out to me as well. I think I wrote the next, I took a note with the next thing that was mentioned. I think um, the willingness to hear anger and not be defensive. Um, I think that that was what really stood out to me as far as that goes as well. It just, um, it's something that, like I said, it goes back to the the constant decolonization of the mind and um, the idea of whiteness not being about individuals and as being part of a larger structure that we're all a part of, right? And we all contribute to in some way. And so unless we're actively working against that because it's already in motion, then we are just part of that same structure and that larger moving body. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you said you're, you're sort of going through the four stages presented in the liberatory consciousness model and, and kind of revisiting some of the stages because, you know, you, you go through awareness and then um, as the trainers mentioned, people like to jump right into action and they really, really were very strongly encouraging people to, to slow down and, and really go into analysis before action. And then after action, as you pointed out, there's, you know, the accountability and allyship piece, but you're saying like you, you've had the opportunity to kind of revisit some of these stages within different parts of your identity. Definitely. Yeah. And a lot of it, um, I feel is, me recognizing the privileges that I do have. Um, I grew up in the poorest county in the state, which is Rio Reba County. And um, I had the opportunity to get out and move to Albuquerque. And that gave me so many more opportunities that a lot of my peers did not have. And so I was able to go to school and all these things. So I can definitely reflect on those privileges and um, you have to constantly be aware of that. It's, it's not something that, yeah, like, you know, I can't just, 
move into action. And I mean, of course, there's always actions that we can take. Um, yeah, but what but they it's were, a constant, <laughs> right? Like it's a, it's like yeah, take take action, but but don't forget about the analysis and the deep work that needs to happen to to continually be looking at these things and and just you know to let listeners know kind of where I'm coming from with this is you know I'm a white woman hetero uh, sexual and so. I'm coming from the perspective of a lot of privilege. Um, And I think this is where a lot of white people get really caught up and and confused and, and like defensive. Um, And this is where we see white fragility show up a lot. Right. Which is like, Hey, I've worked really hard in my life. Like I've had a lot of struggles. Why are you telling me I have all this privilege? Like, I certainly don't feel like that, you know? And, um, and right. so I, I would say to those folks kind of, yeah, I hear you. And what I have learned over the years, and I've been working in social justice, granted from a feminist perspective, which has its own issues with racial justice and diversity and mm-hmm. equity. Uh, but, you know, I do come from a social justice lens of 20 plus years. And, um, and, and what I came to know was that, yeah, I had a lot of struggles. Like I grew up poor. I lined up in welfare lines with my mom. I was teased for not having, you know, the right clothes and all of that. And so, yeah, I had a lot of struggles and, but none of them were because of the color of my skin. Exactly. And I think that's the piece that a lot of white or white identifying or white presenting people you know, it's it's like the big elephant in the room. It's like, that's the big piece that we, you know, we need to acknowledge. And then we don't need to be defensive about it anymore. It's just like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> I get it. Right. You know, it's, <clears throat> it, and it's at this point, you know, I, it, the number the numbers, the facts, the statistics, they're out there everything is available to you just as easy as it's it is to google what restaurant you're going to eat at next or you know look up something on amazon you can easily just type in the numbers and see the facts laid out there there for you and then from there i think i think that people are not going to be given the opportunity to argue with that it's prevalent in every single aspect of our society and health and education um, yeah. anti-blackness and the way that the way that black people are treated differently is just very prevalent in our society yeah and it's 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 very um, obvious in some cases, you know, like when we see it on video or we hear right. it and then it's very, um, nuanced and not obvious in, in other cases. And I think that that is where a lot of the work is because it's when we make these great big claims, like, you know, we're, 
we're not racist and we, we don't identify with, you know, typical like mass media representations of racism, but actually the real work is digging into how does racism show up in my life every day, like in how I operate in the world, you know, at work, in my family, in, in my community. Right. And that is the hard part, right? (laughs) Because then we have to really start calling out people that we love and it might be difficult and there might be, you know, a fight, it might get ugly, but these are things that we, we have to do if I care about you. Yeah. I'm really fascinated with this discussion of dominant culture and dominant groups and identities. And, you know, you sort of started this conversation with sharing how you identify. And in this training that we took yesterday, um, or recently, the whiteness at work training, they really focused on like, let's explain what dominant culture is. Let's explain what white dominant culture is. And then they really went into, which I loved, was this sort of analysis of dominant group behavior and non-dominant group behavior. And so the dominant group, you know, say white people, um, uh, heterosexual people, um, you know, they named a lot of different groups. Um, They're really unaware of their quote unquote groupness. So whereas a a non-dominant group um, a black indigenous woman of color or people of color or, um, you know, LGBTQ plus all of the non-dominant group, they're constantly aware of their groupness. And that was sort of what you identified as like identifying the otherness, right? Like when did you really, really notice that you were in that otherness? And <clears throat> I think it's really worth looking at, at the difference between how the dominant group views themselves versus the non-dominant group that that was really eye-opening for me definitely yeah and that was where where I started to realize again you know back to the the stages I can definitely see myself on both sides of the fence on on all of those because yeah you know every single time that like she said you know when I walk into a space I really observe who is in my surroundings, that's a huge, a huge part of it. Because I think, again, you know, people can, can really take a look at that and understand where they fall in dominant and non-dominant culture. And yeah, yeah. And they actually outlined some of those groups. So they said race, gender, citizenship status, sexual orientation. So for listeners, if you're identifying with these groups, you know, it's really interesting to start thinking like, okay, am I aware of, of my, you know, identity in these groups? Um, And then the other thing was, that was really interesting for me, and I think helpful was dominant groups tend to say, look how much progress has been made. You know, like we've heard that in the feminist movement, we've heard it in racial justice movements, we've heard it in so many areas, like, look how much progress has been made, like you should be happy. Uh, Whereas the non-dominant group is saying, there's such a long way to go, like we're so not there. And that that was a really clear distinction for me. 
Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I feel like I, you know, this for me has been a long time coming. And so it's a really, really exciting time to see people who aren't normally vocal about issues like this, um, really joining conversations and at a national scale, you know, I can't really even explain because it's just so much information and such a long time coming that um, I really just, I feel the sentiment, you know, I feel like there is still so much work to be done, but we also, we have to celebrate our our successes along the way to keep us going and to keep us re-energized and to keep us moving. <laughs> in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And just to touch on something that you also brought up about having difficult conversations with people that, you know, it's like you said, you know, you were, you're used to having some of these conversations, but not with certain people, right? Like that's the big shift right now. And what really struck me in the, the whiteness at work training was how they said, you know, call people in instead of calling people out so that we're bringing people into the conversation. And and I, I really liked their message of like compassion and love, like do it lovingly. We don't need to recreate uh, like a white supremacist <laughs> structure within our conversations, right? Right. And then it, it kind of uh, started to talk about perfectionism, <laughs> which really stood out to me as well, because she said that perfectionism is a tool of white supremacy. And yeah, if I can't do I it think, right, I can't do it. I won't do it at all. <laughs> right. And I think as a, as a team, um, you know, in reference to our team, I have been really trying to work on that as well. Um because all of us have different strengths and different weaknesses. And um, I think if just taking that step in doing the work is really where, where it all starts and you just keep the the foot on the gas. (laughs) Yeah. That was a, a hard lesson for me early in my career about like doing everything perfectly and confusing, like making a mistake with being a mistake and like taking it really personally. Like I am just an awful person because I didn't do this perfectly. Whereas that that is a tool of oppression, just, just what you were just saying. Right. And it's, again, a daily, every day, it's something that, you know, we have to be aware of and we have to work on. And so I, um, I know another thing that stood out um, regarding the white racial identity development um, was leverage your skills for the movement. And so it's, again, I I really want to take the time to acknowledge the privilege that I do have and being able to complete school and um, having to have that opportunity is just something I'm really grateful for. Mm. (laughs) I just can't say that enough. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that struck me was when um, Jessica Fish was speaking and and she's the white trainer. There's a two trainers and and she was, she's, you know, white woman trainer and very experienced in racial justice training and work. Uh, And she was explaining her own experience as a white girl, not having had any contact with black people which I I found actually really, uh, I couldn't relate to that at all. 
you know, being a white woman, I was like really interested in that because I grew up in New Mexico. And as we know, the population of black people is very, very small here. But even in New Mexico, my first grade teacher was a black woman and she made a huge impact on my life. Like she is the teacher that I look back on that like changed the direction of my life. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I didn't relate at all to, to her experience as a white girl growing up and not having any contact with black culture. But I understand that, that, that a lot of people do have that experience. I just didn't relate to that because of Mrs. Ross and her orange pantsuit. And, and I loved her. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I remember her so clearly and, uh, but you know, again, yeah, it was like, it is a, a very distinct memory I have of a black person. It wasn't like we ha- I didn't have a lot of black people around me. Um, but anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> In yeah. Of, of my experience as I begin to, uh, work on my critical consciousness back in, you know, my undergrad at UNM, I, you know, I found myself noticing and counting the number of black people or people of color in my classrooms. And Mm. that experience is just really awakening too, because, you know, here we are in New Mexico and we're really multiracial. And at the same time, it, depending on the space that you're in, it's really not. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a very interesting way to um, start just observing your spaces and observing who is around you and um, creating, creating diversity along your, your friends and your family and your coworkers. And it's just so important. (laughs) Right. And that goes to the stage one of the liberatory consciousness framework, which is awareness, right? Like, okay, how many people are on my staff? How many people are in my company that are black or people of color um, or indigenous. And so that's the whole awareness piece, right? That, that we have to do before we can even do the analysis or, or take the appropriate action. So, well, and how yeah, and constantly revisiting that, I think too, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, you never really get, there is the fourth step isn't the last step because you're always going to be constantly going through these steps um, to be, con- to, to continue to be anti-racist. That's what I will say. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, just for listeners that are interested, we do have resources at our at the website, wellwomanlife.com slash anti-racism. There are so many resources out there and, and I get that. There are so many lists and things, but uh, I do feel like we're curating a list that is um, specifically interesting for, for intersectional feminism, for women, um, and Angelica, do you have anything that you want to talk about as far as resources to add to our growing resource list? Yeah, it's a really great list already. I will tell you that. And I, um, the, the two most recent items that I'm learning about, or I watched just mercy, um, and that's a story about Brian Stevenson. And it was just a really amazing way to understand the uh, inequality of the the justice system 
And then a book I just started to read is The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And so those are just, I meant to mention that earlier. And just those are my, right now, my grounding (laughs) where I am, the most recent. Um, But I'm definitely going to get you a a list with some references. I would definitely say to follow Tamika D. Mallory on social media. And um, my my mentor is Drea Beta, the YouTube academic. She has a YouTube page okay. and um, she does a daily a daily video um, called the Abeta Reality Dose. And so she just touches on some really amazing topics. And um, yeah, I'll be sending you some resources to add definitely. Okay. So definitely head over to wellwomanlife.com slash anti-racism to get all of those links and resources that uh, we've been putting together and that Angelica is adding to. And I'm reading... Right now, I just started it, so I, I can't really say anything much about it yet. But I'm reading uh, Me and White Supremacy by Layla Saad. And so I'm excited to share about that on future episodes. And um, thank you for having this conversation. Are there any last um, calls to action or thoughts that you want to share before we? Um, I, the last one I will say is that, you know, right now here in Albuquerque, we do actually have a political prisoner by the name of Clifton White, who um, could definitely use some support, some calls to everybody in leadership to, to help get justice for Clifton White as well. He's a local um, man who has been organizing for Black Lives Matter. And so I think it's really important for us to stay focused on our local organizers as well. Okay. And we can put that in the show notes as well at wellwomanlife.com slash podcast. Um, you can go there and get all the links and all the, we'll put a link into the framework we talked about and, and all, all kinds of things. So um, thank you, Angelica, for this awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Giovanna, for creating this space again. It's really amazing. I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your well woman life, head over to wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook to join our community. There's a list of anti-racism resources at wellwomanlife.com slash anti-racism. And you can check out all the past episodes of the Well Woman Show featuring Black, Indigenous, and women of color at wellwomanlife.com slash women of color. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week, so be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.